This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Hello, this is Jen from Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and today we've got an exciting spotlight for you. So Lynn actually brought to my attention this article from the New York Times, which came out today, Tuesday, and it's called Therapy for Sexual Misconduct. It's mostly unproven, and so we'll talk a little bit about this article, but it also just sparked a very interesting conversation between me and Lynn that we wanted to share with you. We are so we can see in the dark this week's spotlight we're going to be talking about a couple different things we are rockets pointed up at the stars and i'm looking forward to this discussion we are billions of beautiful hearts this is lynn of lynn and jen let's talk about sex And uh, there's a a subject that we're following up on very quickly because we think it's of great interest to our listeners out there and also to us personally. And the topic is uh, really talking about individuals in families who are sexual abusers and harassers and how they should be addressed, some of the strategies that families can use for addressing the behavior of these individuals, and also those who are somewhat complicit with the behavior and trying to avoid conflict and not really talking about it. So uh, I'm sure that none of our listeners out there come from those families, but Jennifer and I both have some experience and we'd like to share it with you and hear back from you. Well, I think it's so interesting because you know, it, this started with this article that um, was in the New York Times called Therapy for Sexual Misconduct. It's mostly unproven. But I think really we're taking it in a little bit of a different direction here. And what was so striking to me is that you use this metaphor of how, you know, the sexual harassment and sexual abuse, it, it, it's a real widespread problem. And that I think we look at it from such a different frame, but you were talking about how similar it is to alcoholism in terms of how widespread it is and that the positions or the roles that people play in perpetuating it. Well, I've I've worked uh, on this problem with families for decades. And um, first to give readers the reference that um, the article is written by uh, Benedict Carey that uh, kind of sparked this uh, interest and it was available this morning. And as you mentioned, it's about therapy for sexual misconduct. It's mostly unproven. And I was concerned that the combination of saying, well, the the therapy for harassers and abusers is unproven, and uh, the abusers and harassers themselves often don't want to seek therapy, and they minimize it, that we would not be able to talk about what is out there 
for uh, those who want to change their behavior and for the families that have really struggled with individuals like this. And it's very key that uh, all of our listeners know that there are different things that family members can do. And you sparked me to really talk about this, uh, Jennifer, because I think it's one of the most important areas I've worked on really in my therapy career. I think also it's so important because I think just like with alcoholism, you can't really just deal with the individual. It's really a system. It's really a whole constellation of things. And and by tackling all the different components, that's really, I think, what makes lasting change. And that's very similar to dealing with abuse in the family or abuse in, you know, school systems, just abuse with people that you you know. And I think that's a big thing too, is so many people want to look at abuse and abusers as these sort of random monsters in our society. And as we're seeing, they're I don't want to say they're everywhere because that makes it sound really terrifying, but you know, they're, they're not as isolated as we'd like to think of them. And I think we really have to understand the, the framework that is, is allowing it to be so normalized. And they're embedded in family structures. You know, this morning we were talking about the idea that family members who have an abuser or a harasser in their midst should be able to go to an organization like Al-Anon, where they discuss and talk and really receive support from others who are in the same struggle. And we looked online for these types of organizations, and we've been in this field, as we've talked about for decades, and they're really not available. But I have worked with a number of families who have had harassers and abusers in their midst. They've had to confront the behavior. They've had to really look for resources for treatment, and they've had to not normalize what's really going on in the family structure. So there are interventions and strategies out there. A family can seek out therapy for this. Uh, A family can look for ways to intervene. And it is similar to the model that has been used successfully with alcoholics in the family. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a key component that we were kind of putting together this morning is really that idea of the Al-Anon that I think what we see online, and it's very important, there are a lot of support groups for family of, of people who have survived abuse, you know, or harassment, but there aren't for the people who are dealing with the people that are abusing. And I think that's so key too, because I think people like that, they need help. They need the support. And they it's helpful, I think, to see that you're not alone in it and that it doesn't have to just keep continuing, that there are options to change it. Some of the things that I've seen work successfully with families is that um, within a family, say two, three, four members will talk, support each other much in a supportive way as an Al-Anon group would, and then figure out strategies to confront the behavior. First, they'll warn the other family members that this behavior is going on and to avoid that individual. 
They'll provide support if that individual is at family parties so that they're always on the outlook. They're making sure this isn't happening. They'll prioritize the needs of children, those at risk, the victims, and make sure that they're not in contact with the abuser in this way. You know, if there are legal aspects, as with children, because some of these harassers and abusers, they affect children, you can report it to the state and, you know, again, get help in that way. And many times I think I've had to encourage, you know, mothers to really call uh, the state and report the abuse and then get an investigation started that way. And you also bring up the silent family members who are somewhat complicit in the behavior because they don't speak out. They are avoiding conflict. But in doing so, they unify really with the abuser who's also denying the activity they're engaged in. Well, I think that's so crucial. And that's why this alcoholism frame is so helpful because people recognize the word enabler. And really, that's what's happening here. And I don't think people are consciously wanting to enable behavior. But a lot of times, what motivates it is the avoidance of the conflict. And in doing that, it does enable, it does normalize whatever the abuser is doing. And I think that's so much a key part of it is that the abuser themselves is trying to normalize their behavior. And then they're able to justify it by saying, well, this other person they think it's normal too. Exactly. And I think you don't necessarily see that when you're in the middle of it. Right. That you're joining in this process of normalization. Uh, Within the last few uh, uh, weeks, um, Scarlett Johansson went on Saturday Night Live and played uh, uh, Ivanka Trump, really. And uh, part of this uh, creation was that she was wearing the perfume complicit. And uh, you and I talked earlier that many of these individuals, many are women, you know, because males are often, more often, abusers in this way. But many of them are involved in this process, Um, not that they are abusing others, but they're really not protecting themselves or members of the family from it. And I think this also gives individuals a role that they can protect the family, they can act together, and they can really speak out uh, about this behavior. It's also the only thing I've seen that has changed in a longstanding way the pattern of abuse in a family. I mean, so the, the how do I say this? It's kind of the, the same way that silence plays into the role of the oppressor. I think by normalizing the behavior, it's also giving that power to the abuser, which is what the abuser is trying to do. It's trying to normalize all of this behavior. And so the only way to really fight it is to come together with your support network and challenge them and confront them about it. Once that process is, is, has been completed, and that's really an ongoing process, because uh, abusing individuals will continue to want to normalize their behavior. Their denial is very strong often with this. And the family has to stand strong against it and recognize that the behaviors can reoccur even if the individual is saying otherwise. But I think the second part to think about and what sparked me again about this article 
was that there is treatment available. Both Weinstein and Spacey are saying that they're going to now explore treatment and everyone is kind of angry because they're thinking, rightfully so, that they're doing this to avoid jail time. But treatment programs are often done in conjunction with jail time because that's the only way you can really, I think, address this behavior often and get people to commit to treatment in the way that they need to. So um, we wanted to talk a little bit about what type of treatment is available. Yeah, well, before we launch into that, I want to bring up another point, which is I think, you know, I've been also looking at comment feeds and and different feedback. And I think a lot of times what you see is, you know, the immediate reaction is like, oh, we just need to castrate all these people. And I think it's really important to talk about that because you brought it up in a great frame. And I think sharing that with our listeners is really helpful, which is that, you know, essentially a trust is broken there. And so when these people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go get treatment, I think it's natural for us to be very skeptical and like, okay, you never sought it before. Why Why are you doing it now? Well, because you've been caught, you've been confronted. And so I think a big part of the idea behind the castration is it's this sense of, well, that is something that we can trust. And I think to know a little bit about castration as a treatment for Uh, sexual abusers. And it does, you know, there have been studies both on drugs that have been administered to diminish sexual impulses, which are very important. And then there were actually castration studies done on prisoners and other groups. Again, many times, uh, (laughs) to say this, you can still take power over another person. You can still assault another person. You can still do all of these activities, even within that frame. So there's more that has to change other than that idea will just castrate them. And that's kind of a very brief and really doesn't address the problem way of looking at this. But in terms of the full range of treatment strategies, some individuals who are compulsively engaged in abuse do agree to take medications to diminish those um, impulses so that they will not offend other individuals. That's so important to talk about, too, because I don't think it's an aspect that many people know about. And I think to also add to it is really, again, it can't be just the medications. It really needs to be this full, comprehensive treatment, which is what allows it to to be effective. You have to challenge the thoughts. You have to challenge the feelings. You have to learn to recognize the triggers. And I know you have a great workbook that you use with some of the some of your clients, some of your patients. One of the uh, presses to really give credit to is Safer Society Press, uh, which is in Vermont. And probably they won't be liked, uh, won't like being flagged this way, but they do publish workbooks to be used by individual therapists and those working within the prison, the legal system. One of the books I've used is Building a Better Life, uh, a Good Lives and Self-Regulation Workbook by Pamela Yates and David Prescott. And I think what's interesting about this book is um, they really work with abusing individuals to get them to articulate in their own words how they would change their lives, how they would deal with the abusing, and really 
put it in the words of the abuser instead of the abusers just parroting back maybe a therapist's words that they know will get them out of the situation. So I think recognizing that it's really about a long-term project to change aspects of a life over time and involves a lot of commitment. It's not just going and getting fixed, as Weinstein puts it. There's a lot more to this whole process. Whether or not these treatment programs have been validated, there's real question about that. And treatment programs for those under 25, particularly under 18, I highly support that for those involved in harassment and abuse. There's a lot of validation for those programs. You want to get early intervention. You want to address an abuser's behavior early in life if you can. But it's still worth, I've worked with many individuals over decades, their lives are greatly improved by committing to this and really working in a therapeutic milieu. I agree. I think what comes up, especially with my clients who are in situations where there is an abuser, especially because we just had Thanksgiving and you know our last episode talked about how to deal with the challenges of that. Um, what I notice is a lot of them often ask, you know, how do you get somebody who is engaging in this behavior to acknowledge that they're doing what they're doing, that they are abusing or harassing? And to go back to my own family and part and some of the other families I've worked with, I think first talking about it, if you're an individual and you're observing it, is sharing it with others, warning others about it. Um, getting help yourself and therapy to feel strong so that you can push forward with it. Um, you've already taken an important step in not normalizing it and really noticing that it's different. And I want to highlight that yeah. because that's such an important, crucial first step is really that acknowledgement of this is not normal and this needs to change. Yeah. And that's where a lot of people are right now. It's just recognizing it and feeling it and recognizing you have to do something. Then often these, as you point out, Jennifer, these abusers and harassers are embedded in our families. We cannot just cut them out or leave them. It's very hard to do that. So then I think building allies, building a group where you work together then you confront them as a group. If the behavior takes place, say at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, and the abuser is there engaging in it, the whole group gets up and walks away and leaves that individual or asks the individual to leave. You know, these are ways to really deal with it and you call the behavior on what it is. That also prevents younger members of the family from learning the behavior that they see. And as that's really key and vital that we stand up and we address this type of behavior. And I think very specifically saying the behavior, because I think, you know, what they talk about is a lot of times when somebody's engaging in behavior that is not appropriate, whether it be sexual harassment, sexual abuse, they won't talk about it directly. They'll say, you know, oh, it wasn't that big deal, or I just did that. I didn't even touch her, you know, things like that. And so instead to really walk it back, and it's something that you would do in therapy is saying, what exactly happened? Tell me the behavior. And it really forces them to one, acknowledge the behavior that happened. But two, it provides that chance to be responsible and go, wow, okay. One of the things that came up in the article in the mm -hmm. New York Times was really the idea 
that in legal situations, when abusers are forced to listen to the statements that have been provided by those they've been abused, they're to read them. You know, often they have the victim in court read the statement. I think one thing that would be more effective is to have the abusing individual stand up and read the statement of the victim so that they, in their words, have to articulate what the experience was from the other side. Because I think you're really trying to get people to see this other perspective and recognize their own actions. Yeah, that reminds me, actually, I can't remember what exactly the program was. But when I was in grad school, they were talking about programs for serial abusers in terms of domestic violence. And that was one of the key components they added that made a really big difference was the the abuser, the person committing domestic violence, they were the ones who had to read the victim statement out loud. And I think it really sunk in in a different way. No, that's very powerful. Because as you put it, they're often minimizing, you know, the comments such as, you know, if someone's harassing you in the family, they say, well, I, I went too far, you know, right, or it's exactly. a joke. Oh, oh, that's a big one. Yeah. And it's a joke. And I went too far, really have to be taken, you have to go back and say, you called me a bitch. And you did it in this way to demean me. And it made me feel very bad. And you've done this a 100 times. And, you know, it involves a whole action. And now I want you to say what I said to you. And that, you know, and that is a back and forth with that. But it's very difficult. And it also is fairly confrontational. And a lot of people are trying to avoid that. That's a big thing. A big part of the therapy is reframing that confrontation as being assertive. You are setting a limit. You are setting a boundary and protecting yourself and the other people around you. But I think a lot of the people that I work with who are conflict avoidant, they're very worried about being seen as a bad person. And I think that in general plays so much into so much of all of this. And I think that's the other thing in terms of going back to getting someone to acknowledge their behavior is if you make them feel just like a bad person entirely, you're going to get a lot more of the defensiveness. But when you're calling out a very specific behavior, which is very evident just happened, it's much harder to deflect that or to deny it. And in the families I've worked with, the children and the younger members who've seen older members confront this behavior are energized. They really can spot it in their own life. They don't marry an abuser. You know, lots of things change. So there's so many reasons to confront this abuse within the family structure, as well as, I can't say I'm so excited as I watch Uh, individuals speak out against their abuse in the public sector. It doesn't discount that. But I think most of us are also grappling with this in the family sphere. Well, I think to acknowledge that a lot of us are grappling with this and that if you aren't, you probably have friends who are. And so to be able to be part of a support network, because as you can see, having to confront an abuser in this way is not easy. And we really need the support. And we need to understand, I think, fundamentally, though, that what we're doing 
is an effective course of action because otherwise I think people worry about the consequences. You know, well, what if they abuse me more? Or what if, you know, what if these other things happen? What if my whole family turns against me? I think these are natural fears that people bring up. And so it really is about how do you find those alliances? How do you find within yourself that confidence that what you're doing is the correct thing for you? And how do you build a network so that the people around you are not part of the pressure to normalize that behavior? And that involves the process we were really just talking about. One of the other things that was mentioned in the article is the research by a very famous researcher in the field of abuse and harassment, and that is Michael Seto, S-E-T-O, and he works in Toronto. And uh, I think looking up his research, really examining it, looking at the programs that are being studied really gives people a point to jump off with and work within a family. Because I have a lot of uh, family members calling and saying, where can we get treatment for this? I have attorneys for abusers asking, where can I get treatment for my client who is really abused in this way? So there are people out there in need, and really, we need better channels to talk about the treatment avenues. Well, I think in terms of treatment avenues, too, what it fundamentally brings up is you have to look at the abusers and understand that what they're doing is not okay. They are also human beings. And I think a lot of times we want to make them into monsters or people that are somehow outside of the human realm. And when you do that, then you're trying to kind of cut them out of society, but they're so embedded. So instead, you really have to work with that human aspect and, and look at it and say, they are human and we need to treat them as a human and reject the behaviors that they're doing though. And so I think that's why going back to this idea of the alcoholic frame is so perfect because you don't necessarily just try to cut out every alcoholic in your life. You really look at they're struggling with this and they need help and they need support and the people that are around them are struggling with it and they need help and they need support. And you also allude to a very important point that I don't think we've underscored in this talk, but we always talk about it. Individuals who have suffered abuse and harassment need therapy, too. Oh, yes. They need treatment, too. Oh, yes. And that's where you and I spend, I'd say, the bulk of our time is working with those individuals. We also work with individuals who harass and abuse, but the bulk is directed at this other area. But if you do not treat the abusers and the harassers, they're still there as part of society. And our society is really sickened and weakened by this activity. It's very important to change it. I guess what I was trying to get to in talking about them being human is I think a lot of times, you know, we want to categorize people as the bad guys versus the good guys. And it really isn't that black and white. And I think... It, it really comes down to how do you address the specific behaviors that are going on? Because let's say it's somebody who is in their mind, quote, just harassing people, right? That's pretty common, I would say. 
And if you call them a bad person, if they feel themselves to be a bad person, that elicits the shame and it makes them withdraw and they're not going to talk about it and they're not going to try and look at where these ideas come from for them and change the behavior. But if instead you're able to focus on, you know, maybe societal constructs or beliefs that you had growing up that are incorrect and need to be corrected, then I think you have a chance to get someone to really take in and absorb what you're saying instead of just deflecting it. Oh, you're exactly right, Jennifer, confronting them over and over and over again in this way. And that is their support groups for individuals who abuse where they are confronted by others in the group who recognize the manipulations right. than therapists who have experience who confront over and over and over again. And even that, you know, there's often danger they will fall back into unhealthy patterns. But there are things that really reinforce the positive patterns too. Staying in therapy, having family members involved in therapy, having a legal arm can sometimes do that. Uh, Having a group of other confronters who've been through it. So there's a lot of things to be aware of with this. And I think to bring up that, you know, I think an article like this kind of brings up this sense of what can be done. And instead, we can really look at some of the programs that are already in place and say, how do we adjust these? How do we adopt these to be useful for this problem, for harassment, for abuse? Exactly. And strengthen really what we've got. There should be money spent in this area. Because it's really important to address this problem for our society. You know, it's it's at the highest levels now. We have individuals harassing. You know, we're going to have this problem. Or maybe we should have a, a group for the House and the Senate, a special group. You know, right? Yeah. But uh, I do think it's important to really get the commitment of the silent members in our society that really stop normalizing it, so we can work together as a team. That actually reminds me of something we had been talking about earlier, which is what I've noticed in working with families. You know, I'm thinking more around like addictions and and, um, alcoholism and things like that. But what I notice is you can work as much as you want with an individual and that can go far. What makes the biggest difference is really having all the pieces together. And so working with someone who is enabling to get them to stop doing that. So in this case, it would be stop normalizing this behavior. Work with yourself to resolve your conflict avoidance so that you can be one of the people confronting the abuser or the harasser. It makes such a big difference. It makes such a big difference. Well, thank you for inspiring me for us to get on right away and talk about this. And we really want to hear from our listeners. Thank you, too. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. You definitely inspired me with this one.